Father, we cry out with the Apostle Paul that whether by life or by death, you might be magnified in our lives. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May that be our clarion call, our heart's passion as we come and worship you today. Lord, we acknowledge your presence. Thank you for being here. May every heart be turned toward you. May your spirit grab hold of every mind, our emotions, subdue our will so that we can pray about you reigning over us and in us. And most of all, Lord, we pray that all that is done this day in this place may be to the praise and honor and glory of your matchless name. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A pastor was speaking to some middle school students, and he knew that his sermon needed some help to keep their attention. So he started out at the very beginning by setting four jars in front of the students. One jar, and they were capped. One jar was filled with alcohol. One jar was filled with cigarette smoke. A third jar was filled with chocolate syrup. And the last jar was filled with good, dark, rich soil. With great fanfare, he put a worm in each one of the jars and capped it up again. And he began his sermon with the idea that at the end there would be some application that the students knew nothing about. He was preaching about temptations. And at the end of the sermon, he indeed opened up the jars. And in the jar of alcohol, the jar of cigarette smoke, the jar of chocolate syrup, he pulled out a dead worm in each one of them. But in that last jar of rich, dark soil, the worm was alive and squirming. And he said to the students, what do you learn from this? One student said, if you drink alcohol, smoke cigarettes, and eat chocolate, you won't have worms. I think you missed my message, the pastor said. (laughs) Well, you cannot miss the message of the Apostle Paul in the first three chapters of Romans, can you? He hammers it home from chapter 1, verse 17, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile, all have sinned. The religious person the person who's merely moral, and the great wicked person, all collectively, universally, are sinners. And we felt the, uh, the, the blow of Paul's beating upon us, and, and we felt the guilt in our own heart, in our own mind. But now Paul wants to make sure that you don't miss his message of hope. And he makes a wonderful transition, as we noticed last week in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now, 
after all of this. But now there's a righteousness from God, and it's apart from law-keeping. A righteousness from God has been revealed. It has been displayed. It has been made known. And he's, of course, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness which was hinted at in the Old Testament, the law, meaning all the Old Testament, and the prophets. But now, this righteousness from God comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 22, one of the greatest verses, I think, in all the Bible, as it encapsulates the wonderful message of the gospel of God's free grace to us. Aren't you glad for the but now? I was a sinner going on my own sinful way, cared not for the Lord Jesus, cared not for his word, cared not for his people, cared not for eternity, but then God stepped in and showed me my sin and I fled for home to the cross. But now I have a righteousness not of my own, but from God. And that makes all the difference in the world. The Apostle Paul, in describing this righteousness, has used some amazing words, words like redemption and justification and propitiation. And all of those words talk about what Christ has done for us to achieve this righteousness. And it was displayed on the cross that his love was demonstrated and his justice vindicated on the cross. And now, by faith, we can be born again. But the Apostle Paul is aware that his Jewish audience might be offended by some of the things that he has already said. He started out chapter 3 with four questions that talked about universal guilt. And now he ends Romans chapter 3 with three questions that have to do with salvation by faith. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 3, we're actually starting with the verse 27. And here's the first question of the three. What about boasting? The Jews were kind of good at that. Actually, we all are. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Boasting is one of Paul's favorite words because boasting was one of Paul's greatest problems. He liked to boast about his pedigree, his background. Boasting is is to announce in a public way Something that I've done, an achievement of mine that I believe merits uh, attention and reward and certainly publicity. And apparently no one else is talking about my deeds, so I need to talk about them myself. 
It is interesting, Paul has already talked about this word boast. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, and you boast in your unique relationship with God. Also in chapter 2, verse 23, you boast in the law, yet at the same time you dishonor God by breaking the law. So they were boasting about their relationship with God. They were boasting about the law. They really had in their mind that there are two ways to be saved, one for them and one for everyone else. And the way for them is the fact that they're Jews. Their boasting was cultural. Their boasting was national. Their boasting had a sense of religious superiority to it. And they did indeed look down their spiritual noses at other people who were not Jews. And when you think about it, they had some things that were pretty extraordinary, like God gave to them the law, and God gave, gave to them the ordinances and the covenants and the promise, and through Israel, the Savior will come, Messiah. So they had all these advantages but they thought that those advantages would equal out in eternal life. And the Apostle Paul is making sure that they don't think that way. Paul knows because he used to boast. If you were to go back to Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul said, I think it was in verse 2, I boast in Christ now, but if anyone has reason to boast of their performance as a Jew, I do. He said this in Philippians 3, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have all the more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is the perfect day, uh, of the people of Israel, the greatest nation, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the greatest tribes of all the tribes, a Hebrew of, a he, of the Hebrews, which means I was the cream of the crop. If anyone asks you where you fit, in this pantheon of humanity, and you say, well, I'm kind of in the cream of the crop. I'm near the top, one percentile, you know, something like that. That's what Paul was saying. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. That says it all. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, based on the law, <clears throat> I was faultless. And he really believed that. And from an outward standpoint, that was all true. Someone said it's not boasting if it's true. It's not bragging if it's true. And so Paul is bragging about what he used to be. But then he said, I saw Christ. And that made all the difference in the world. I saw God's righteous standard. And I saw that I fell far far short of it. The Gentiles boasted too. If you went all the way back to chapter 1, verse 30, the word is used of the Gentile community in the midst of their wickedness where they deny God and boast of their own merit. In fact, as John Stott said, all human beings are inveterate boasters. I had to look up that word inveterate, which means chronic. Chronic boasters, boasting is the language of our fallen self-centeredness. Someone said the rooster thinks that the sun comes up in the morning just to hear it crow. <laughs> and some of us think the world revolves around 
us. And in the spiritual realm, we're not really that bad. And we begin to measure ourselves by a poor standard. It was in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul said, In the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive. And that sounds so much like our day, doesn't it? Boastful is right at the center of lovers of self and abusive and unthankful and unholy. The list goes on. But notice here, it says that boasting is excluded. Where then is boasting? It's gone. It's eliminated. It doesn't exist anymore. By what law? The law of works? No, no. The law, and here the word law means principle, based on the principle of faith. In the original, there's a direct parallelism between uh, the law of works and the law of faith. And the idea is, uh, obviously, these are two different arenas, and faith is a principle, and the law here uh, has reference to keeping it so as to gain eternal life. But the principle of faith eliminates boasting. Someone said that the arithmetic of legalism always fudges the figures and shows that we have something positive in our ledger. A refund due. God owes us and he has to pay. I've been good. Haven't you heard people say that? Well, God couldn't send me to hell. I'm a good person. And I've done this and I've done that. And they began to show you their ledger. Look at all the positives I've done. Certainly God would be unjust if he would condemn a just person like me. That's the arithmetic of humanity. But the arithmetic of grace is far different. The arithmetic of grace says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. There's nothing that I have to bring of merit to the Savior. It's all of Christ. And if Jesus doesn't save me, I'm a goner, said the old Southern preacher. It's all of Christ. In Romans chapter 4, the very next chapter, as we look at illustrations of faith, it says, in fact, Abraham was justified. If Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about. But not before God. The boasting only works among humans. It doesn't work before a holy God. Gene Brown was an interesting individual. He was an all-American basketball player back in the 1950s for the University of San Francisco. And then he became the first African-American police chief of the city of San Francisco, I think in the 60s. Gene Brown said, the really tough thing about humility is that you can't brag about it. (laughs) So he was a humble man with an amazing uh, resume, 
But he said the difficult thing is about humility, you can't brag about. The, the important thing to remember about grace is you can't brag about it. You don't deserve it. And it's given freely by the Lord above. Is there boasting in salvation? Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace are we saved through faith, not by faith, through faith. And it's a gift of God. It's not the result of our works. What's the rest of it? So no one can boast. God looked down on the earth, and he saw me, and he said, I'm going to save that one. That one's worth saving. No, he didn't. He looked down on the earth and said, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3. Or chapter 2. Chapter 3. <laughs> For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. They've all gone out of the way. There's no fear of God before their eyes. God looks down and sees a world lost and says, I'm going to send my son to save it. That, my friend, is mercy. James Gray had it right when he wrote, Not have I gotten but what I receive. Grace has bestowed it since I have believed. Boasting excluded. Pride, I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Let that be your tune. I'm still a sinner. But praise God, I'm saved by grace. Now, once that happens, you're saved by grace, you, you do boast, but your boasting now is not in yourself, but in Christ. If you study the word boasting throughout the New Testament, there's a fair amount of verses that say, as in Romans 5, 11, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. And Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, may I never boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. There is something hideously wrong with the Christian who boasts in themselves and there's something wonderfully appropriate and attractive in the Christian who boasts in their Savior. Let's make sure that Jesus gets all the glory, right? You were not savable. I mean, attractive. There was nothing in you that pulled the Savior to you except his love. And forever may you live to say thank you to grace. So that was the first question that he asks and answers. Oh, by the way, verse 28, let's not forget that. And here's another one of those wonderful summary statements of the gospel. Paul says, for we maintain, and now he uses an accountant's term. He used the term from the legal court, uh, commercial terms, religious sacrificial terms, propitiation, and now a legal term, an accountant's term. For we have looked at the books. We have concluded, NIV is maintain, 
that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's what we maintain. It's important here, as faith is mentioned again, and I briefly alluded to it, that we are not saved by our faith. We are saved by grace. Faith is the empty hand that takes hold of God. Faith is only the channel or the instrument by which God gives us his righteousness. We should never think of faith as something in and of itself. Faith is only as good as its object. We're not saved by our faith. Now, sometimes we'll talk about saving faith, but that's just to determine what kind of faith really connects with God. And the faith that really connects with God is a faith that begins to live a godly life after you connect. That's the difference, so says James. Faith without works is dead. Faith is nothing but that which links us to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a hot water tank down in my basement, and we have a couple bathrooms on the first level, and there is a line that goes from the water tank to the bathrooms, and when I go in for a shower, that hot water comes from the hot water tank. I don't say, thank you, hose. Now, the hose can give us a problem sometimes, but the hose really doesn't do anything. It makes a connection. It makes a link, but that's all it is. And Jesus is the source of righteousness. And he says, accept it. By faith. Faith is not a work, we'll read in Romans chapter 4. The righteousness is entirely the righteousness of Christ. Lloyd Jones put it this way Martin Lloyd Jones, what saves us is the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work. It is the death of Christ upon the cross that saves us, it is his perfect life that saves us, it is his appearing on our behalf in the presence of God that saves us, it is God putting Christ's righteousness to our account that saves us. It's entirely the righteousness of Christ. And we merely, by faith, believe. Here's the second question, verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Now, again, these questions are kind of connected to the Jews because they used to be bragging about their unique relationship with God. And they also made the statement that they alone are God's people. Rabbi Simeon ben Yohai said, God is the God of all people as creator and judge, but only to Israel did God give his name, and only to Israel does he truly belong. That's their thinking. That was their thinking. And again, when you look at the Old Testament, that appears to be correct, but they missed something. According to chapter 3 and verse 2 in Romans, is there an advantage in being a Jew? Much in every way. As we already said, the law was given to them. In chapter 9, verse 4, theirs is the adoption of sons, the temple worship, the promises. 
It's all theirs. And it's hard to be humble when you have so much to brag about. And they began to think that they're the only ones that God is really concerned about. But Paul bent, bent over backwards to show that we are all under sin. We are all equally guilty of sin, and we are all equally candidates of grace. And so what does it say in verse 29? Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, he is of the, of the Gentiles too. Since, and here's his reasoning, since there's only one God, monotheism is the answer. There's only one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through that same faith. Now, I love what he does here because he emphasizes the fact that there is unity in the sense you, you must get rid of elitism. For God is one, and he's the God of the world, whether that refers to the Jews, the circumcised, or the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. There's an admission here that even in this unity of sin, there are minor yet insignificant divisions below, like Jew and Gentile. Remember Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, when you come to Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, man or woman. Remember that text? I think it's verse 24. And that doesn't eliminate those decisions or those distinctions. It simply highlights the fact that when you are in Christ, everyone is saved and they're on the same level, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Just like before, everyone's on the same level called sin and condemned. There are still distinctions. Men are still men, and women are still women, I think. That was a joke in case you misunderstood me. <laughs> I know, but our society doesn't know. They've given up creatorial distinctions. Jews are still Jews, Gentiles still Gentiles. As John Stott said, skin, skin, pigmentation does not change, and we still have the same passports. Oh, but what does change? The important thing changes. I'm now in Christ. I'm not a sinner. I'm not in sin, resulting in condemnation. I'm in Christ resulting in glorification, and that's by grace alone. The simple message is all who believe in Jesus belong to the same family and should be eating at the same table. Pastor Doug read from that wonderful portion in James about God not showing favoritism. And then he ended with those wonderful words, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's grace. One final question, and we see it in verse 31. Is the law nullified? So again, a Jewish question. Can we not brag about our pedigree? No. Isn't God really in some special way just our God? No. What about the law? The law's under attack. Paul's words are threatening its validity and its virtue. 
by Paul saying that the law is no good, that it has no bearing, it has no power. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? And Paul says in categorical terms, absolutely not. May it never happen, he says. The law can't save us. But when we get to Romans chapter 7, verse 12, it will tell us the law is holy and the commandments, they're holy and righteous, just, and good. Because the moral law of God reveals the holy character of God, and that's good. It's just that we can't live up to that standard and gain righteousness by it. Oh, the law is good. The word Torah that speaks of the law sometimes, usually, refers to the Mosaic law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. At other times, since the word Torah comes from a verb which means to teach, it simply refers to being Torahed, as if you will. Uh, I was Torahed today, uh, the teaching of religious instruction. The third is to refer to Torah in the sense of the whole Old Testament scriptures, the law, to which the law and the prophets testify. Paul uses it in that way. And so the idea is that the purpose of the law is not to save us, but the purpose of the law reveals sin. It holds up a holy standard. And so the law is still good. But here's what happens. When I trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, when I'm justified, he also regenerates my heart and makes me new within. And now there's a heart that longs to follow the law. I'm not saved by following the law, but because it's righteous and holy and just and good, I want to be godly. Therefore, as the Spirit leads me into righteousness and holiness, I'll be doing what the law says. Not all the ceremonial law, but the moral law of God. Notice he uses the word in verse 31, we uphold it. We don't dispose of it, we establish it. We live it. Now some people think that Paul might be referring here to a group of cynics and critics who are attacking him because they believe that Paul denied the law and was actively encouraging people to disobey the law, therefore was pushing an antinomian, no law, philosophy. And Paul just says that's not true. He doesn't deal with it a lot now, but he's going to deal with it when we get to chapter 6, 6 through 8. He's going to deal with it in detail. Shall we sin that grace should abound? Absolutely not. So he's not teaching antinomianism. He is simply teaching that we cannot be saved through legalism, law-keeping, and gain the merit of a holy God. Impossible. No, the law humbles the sinner. The law unites believers. There's only one God. And the law, or faith, I should say, excuse me, upholds the law. Faith humbles the sinner. Faith unites believers. Faith upholds the law of God. It is faith that eliminates boasting. It is faith that eliminates exclusivism. 
And it is faith that does not eliminate the law. In fact, by God's grace, it will be lived in our life. So there's no boasting, no discrimination, no antinomianism. When God touches your heart by grace, you want to live a holy and godly life. Going back to verse 28, we conclude this is our assessment as an accountant of all the facts and figures. We maintain, we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I am saved because Jesus died in my place. And he did that because of love, and he offers it to me because of grace. During the Civil War, there was a true story of a, of a company of irregulars in the Southern Army called Bushwhackers. They were captured by Union soldiers, and because they were not wearing uniforms, but as, uh, as it were, involved in guerrilla warfare, their punishment was more severe. They were to be shot immediately, executed. So there was a line of these bushwhackers on their way to be executed at a firing range when one young Union soldier went up to his officer and said, Sir, could I have a minute? He said, Yeah. He said, I know one of those guys that's going to be killed, condemned to die. We grew up together, know him well. He's from a large family. He's got kids, a lot of responsibilities. He said, I don't have any family. My parents are gone. I have nothing. No one will miss me. He's got a lot of friends. Would it be okay if I took his place in the firing squad so he could live? True story. <laughs> Officer said, well, that's not appropriate. I How can I do that? It only says that someone must die. I'll take his place. I'll pay his penalty. I don't know if he used those words, but that's what he was saying. Somehow the officer so moved agreed and he went over to the line and took that one individual out and put Willie Lear in the line. And within an hour, Willie was gone. In a small cemetery in a little southern town on a humble gravestone are these words. Sacred to the memory of Willie Lear, he took my place. Let's pray. My friend, the only way you can be saved from condemnation is death is if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ who took your place. Father, I know there are some people here, I'm, just, I'm guessing, but in a crowd this size, I would be shocked if there's not someone here who isn't saved. That is, they've never truly turned from their sin and trusted you, making you Savior and Lord of their life. Father, if that's the condition of someone's heart here today, 
open their eyes that they might see the words condemned over their soul. That they might see the one who hung on the cross saying, salvation, believe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.